We're looking at Ecclesiastes, this sustained investigation of life under the sun, where God plays no meaningful part, and this life is all there is. And in such a world, there are no moral absolutes, are there? Or at least what are considered to be absolutes, what's good or bad, moral or immoral, can change. And that can make life unstable, even dangerous. Because you don't know what's acceptable anymore, do you? Can I say this or believe this or not? What words or pronouns am I allowed to use? Will I be denounced or not if I do or I don't? And in today's passage, the preacher says that if we are going to survive and thrive in such a world, you need wisdom. Verse 1. Who is like the wise? And the answer is no one. To navigate the complexities of a secular world, you're going to need to be wise. And Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because the wise person knows that to handle life, and especially life in a secular world with skill, you need help from outside, from above the sun. Okay, but then look what the preacher says. And who knows the interpretation of a thing? And the answer is, the wise person. Okay, but that phrase, the interpretation of a thing, rings some bells, doesn't it? Because the same words were used to describe men like Joseph and Daniel and how they navigated life in their deeply pagan environments that they found themselves in. And so the preacher is saying, listen, if you are going to survive, you need to become like them. And as you do, rather than a secular world leaving you feeling beat down or defeated or unsure of yourself and what you believe, you can thrive. Verse 1 again. A man's wisdom makes his face shine. However, what the preacher wants you to see is that just like Joseph and Daniel, one area where you are going to be tested is unpredictable leaders. First point then, authority in a secular world. The French diplomat Joseph de Maistre wrote, every nation gets the government it deserves. And so does every culture, because in a secular culture, with no means of saying what's always good or bad, what's always right or wrong, we shouldn't be surprised that we can end up with leaders who shift, who backtrack on what they say is right or wrong, or who now approve of what previously they said was wrong, and they want to impose that on others. Verses 3 and 4. He, the king, does whatever he pleases, for the word of the king is supreme. You see, if you remove God from the picture, 
what becomes supreme, the king, what decides what is moral or immoral, what is good or bad, what is to be enforced or not, the king or some demagogic leader, or the majority, or a forceful minority in a democracy. But if you think about it, history is full of examples of why every one of those, king, demagogic leader, the majority, a forceful minority, why every one of those is a very bad basis for deciding what is moral or not. As the preacher says in verse 9, All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. In other words, in an under the sun world with no God and no final judgment, don't be surprised if governments and leaders can become increasingly oppressive and use their authority to harm, to silence, in today's speak to cancel those who it disagrees with. As George Orwell, author of 1984 and Animal Farm wrote, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. And so the Bible just takes for granted that though government is necessary and it's established by God for the good of the people, it can be turned to evil. And when it is, when it is given over to the worship of other gods, the Bible repeatedly pictures it as one beast after another devouring all that goes before it. You know, when Moses was preparing the people of Israel to enter the promised land, he said that every future king should write for himself in a book a copy of this law, and it should be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. In other words, every king Every authority, every government, every culture needs to know it is not your word that's supreme, but God's. And it's only that that will keep you from tyranny. Yeah, but hang on, you might say. Religious authorities have been just as tyrannous as secular ones. Sure, whether secular or religious, How leaders govern critically depends on the gods that they worship. And so when it comes to Christian ones, the problem is not that they have been Christian, it's that they've not been Christian enough, they've not been Christ-like enough. But when authorities bow down before the secular gods of expressive individualism or money or power, you are going to need wisdom in dealing with them. Verses 2 and 3. Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. 
So even when you think the person in authority is heading down the wrong path, even when you are tempted to say to your boss or to the government, verse 4, what are you doing? And you want to give it to them with both barrels. The preacher is saying, hey, don't be quick to do that. Don't be quick to walk away or to storm out. God has established these authorities. So the wise person will have a disposition to honour them. Instead, he says, be patient, verses 5 and 6. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way, for there is a time and way for everything. So there may well come a time when you need to stand up and speak out, even if it costs you. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, the preacher says, verse 3. But wisdom knows to pick its battles, doesn't it? Wisdom knows which hills to die on. Now, in case you hadn't heard, wolves are well and truly back in Switzerland, even here in the Jura. And that can add a certain excitement to your hike or your camping out at night. And Jesus said, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. If you think about it, to be surrounded by wolves is not a great situation to be in, is it? And Jesus is saying, the world that you go out into is not spiritually neutral. There are predators. So be shrewd. But as you do, be innocent. Maintain your integrity. And you should do that, the preacher says, because though the person in authority has power, Though they do have power, it's not supreme power. Verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. So, however powerful leaders or the cultural elite might be, ultimately, compared to God, their power is incredibly limited. They can't control the present, let alone predict the future. And besides, as Derek Kidner puts it, wickedness digs its own grave. Wickedness just has this way of overreaching itself. So when it comes to the crunch, don't compromise your integrity, the preacher is saying. You may not still be in your job to see it. You may not even live to see it. But truth and the good will ultimately triumph. Because the preacher is saying, the only all-powerful and sovereign king is God. But of course that raises a problem, doesn't it? Because if God is in ultimate control, then how do you account for the way that the world is? The world where you can experience good or bad regardless of how you live. How are you supposed to live in a world where not just the leaders, but life itself 
is unpredictable. Second point then, life and death in a secular world. Now, when someone gets praised for something that someone else has done, and you know they don't deserve that glory, it can be hard to swallow, can't it? Well, the preacher sees something even worse. Verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So it's not just that this person didn't do anything to deserve the praise they got. It's the opposite. It's the fact that they did the opposite. I mean, they even get praised by the very people they fleeced, that they exploited or manipulated or lied to. And that's Hevel, the preacher says. Why? Because it doesn't matter how many people praise something or affirm something. It doesn't matter if a whole city can't see that what this guy did was wrong. If it is wrong, it is wrong. And to say otherwise is heaven. It's like smoke. And everyone celebrating it doesn't make it right. As G.K. Chesterton said, Right is right, even if nobody does it. Wrong is wrong, even if everybody is wrong about it. The problem is, the preacher says, that that failure to name wrong as wrong, the failure of justice, can lead to moral decay in a culture. Verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In other words, if you get the impression that crime pays, or that one group can get away with it, or that what's wrong is actually right now, then sin multiplies. And if you're living in such a culture, that comes with a temptation, doesn't it? Maybe I should fudge things morally. Maybe I should be less black and white. Let a bit of grey in. Maybe I should be less concerned about integrity. And that temptation can be heightened by the fact of life that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. So what's the point of being good? Verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. In other words, the preacher is saying, if in a secular world living a life of virtue is not rewarded, or even worse, it might be the opposite, why bother living a life of virtue? Ah, but that's not all. Because if there's the injustice of life, how about the equality of death? Because you can live as good a life as you like, and you're still going to die. Chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. 
it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. So you can be deeply religious or deeply atheist. You can be highly moral or totally immoral, but you still die. You still end up as worm food and you will still be forgotten. So why spend so much time worrying about doing the good and about being good? But to think like that is to misread the world the preacher is saying. In The Magician's Nephew, C.S. Lewis describes how Uncle Andrew gets to witness the founding of Narnia and Aslan the Lion singing everything into being. But Uncle Andrew doesn't hear it as singing because he doesn't want to. He tried his hardest to make believe that it wasn't singing and never had been singing, only roaring as any lion might. Of course, it can't really have been singing. I must have imagined it. I've been letting my nerves get out of order. Whoever heard of a lion singing? And Lewis said, you can read things wrongly like that because what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are. Exactly, the preacher would say. The way you read the injustices of life and the equality of death, the fact that death treats everyone the same, depends on where you're standing. It depends on what sort of person you are. Are you looking at the world through the lens of secularism or the lens of wisdom? You see, the wise person understands that there will be an accounting after death. Verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Look at life from under the sun. This life is all there is and the injustices of life are going to be a problem for you because you're going to have a hard time saying why there is any ultimate reason to pursue the good. But take C.S. Lewis's advice and change where you are standing. Fear God, take an above the sun approach to life. See that there will be a final reckoning, a day of judgment, and things begin to look very different, don't they? And it begins to matter hugely how you live. And by changing the way that you see life, the preacher says that you will also realize that the circumstances of someone's life, even your life, 
don't tell you very much. Chapter 9, verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. So life can be going great or not. People can love you or hate you. They can affirm you or cancel you. You can have 25 million followers on Twitter or none. And it doesn't tell you anything about God's approval of you. The righteous are in God's hands, the preacher says, whether they are loved or hated. And so the wise person reads the love and the hate of the world wisely. They understand that what God says and what a secular world says can be very different. And yet, the preacher's no fool, is he? He is not naive. Third point, wisdom has its limits. Look at verses 16 and 17. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. In other words, the preacher says, try and understand everything about life and you are never going to find rest. Because there are just some questions that you're never going to get an answer to. And some answers just seem to raise even more questions, don't they? And you can end up paralysed. Instead, he says, you need to learn to trust. You need to learn to accept that you're finite and only God is infinite. You can know, but only God is all-knowing. As he said through Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now you might respond by saying, come on, that's a cop-out. That's no different from the secular person who you are accusing of burying their head in the sand and not facing the consequences of their worldview. Now you're also saying, don't think too hard about things. Well, except the secular person who wants to live a good life has to live inconsistent with their worldview, while the person who lives with an above-the-sun view of life, who fears God and realises their own limitations, that they're a creature, not the creator, is living entirely consistent with their worldview. It embraces it. It doesn't hide from it. So one, the secular view, leads to intellectual and moral dissonance. The other, the above-the-sun view, leads to a whole and integrated life. 
But think about it. If the secular view of life is right and ultimately life has no meaning, why do we innately want to find it? Why do people lie awake at night trying to find the answers? Because the preacher says, you have been made to know the one who does know everything. Last point, foretastes of a better world. Look at chapter nine, verse seven, go. So after saying, read secular leaders, read the injustices of life and the equality of death, read the limits of wisdom wisely, the preacher now says, yes, and then do something. And look what he says you are to do. Verse seven, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Now, one of the things you have to learn as a junior doctor is to gulp your food down quickly because you never know when that cardiac arrest bleep is gonna go off and you are going to be running, leaving your lunch behind. And so Sue and I, we had to, when we got married, we had to retrain ourselves to eat slowly. And the preacher is saying, after wisdom, your defense against the hevel of a secular world is to savor your food and to enjoy the wine. Why? Because he says, verse seven, God has already approved of what you do because it's God who made you to enjoy these things. And so as you do, you are living in the grain of creation. You are living as you are made to live, not against the grain, as a secular approach wants you to. And because these are his good gifts to you, as Psalm 104 says, he has given us wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So enjoy them as you would enjoy any gift. And as you do, you are acknowledging God as the gift giver. You are acknowledging God as the God of all grace, which is the very thing the secular world wants you to deny. And then the preacher says, verse eight, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. It's interesting, isn't it? Because a religious person might think, surely the response to the heaven of life, to the heaven of a secular world, should be sackcloth and ashes. We should mourn, we should lament. And there is a place for lamentation. But the preacher says, ah, but fight the culture of death and decay. Live as those who know that life is beautiful, that God is beautiful. And verse nine, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Now just think about this. Food and drink, white clothing, enjoying your wife, what do they sound like to you? That sounds like marriage, a wedding, doesn't it? Wine and white and wives, 
exactly, the preacher says. Live like you have been invited to a wedding feast. Why? Because you have. Because these things that we get to enjoy now are foretastes. They are promises of a feast that is to be thrown by a king more real than our unpredictable leaders in a kingdom more lasting than the injustices of life or the equality of death. And Jesus said of himself that he came eating and drinking. In fact, eating and drinking enough to be labelled by the religious people of his day. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Because he is a friend of sinners, because he is the God of all grace, because he is the feast-throwing King. And it's because of Jesus that we can know more fully than the preacher ever knew that God has already approved of what you do. Because by Jesus dying the death that we deserve, by him taking our punishment upon himself, now we don't have to do anything to earn God's approval. By grace, we already have it. And every time that we remember Christ's death by taking the bread and the wine of communion, we do so in anticipation of the greatest feast yet to come. Paul wrote, Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ is the wisdom that we all need. And it's through him, through his death and his resurrection, that we will read the world, leaders and life and death and our own limits, rightly. And as we do, we will find the courage to keep going in an increasingly secular world. As the preacher says in verse 10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Follow a secular worldview, follow it through to its conclusion, and it is hard to see why you should do anything with all your might, because everything is ultimately pointless. But see the world through the lens of Christ, and your work even for unpredictable bosses, even though someone else might get the reward for it, is full of meaning. As Paul said, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Believe in an under-the-sun world, and everything is heaven. But see this world as a foretaste of the world above the sun. And as the preacher says, you will go and live.